0: Well, I hope you're uh, actually a little bit nervous about this passage that we're looking at today. Uh, You might have already had your own response to the reading of it and to the passages that we've just read. Perhaps you were surprised, perhaps you were puzzled or maybe intrigued, or perhaps even shocked or maybe even horrified to find that Paul has just said what he has said to the Corinthian church. And whether you're a member of Emmaus Road or you're just visiting today, uh, this has, uh, whether, whether you're somebody who calls yourself a Christian or not, uh, this has got to be one of the several passages in the Bible uh, that many people don't know what to do with. Uh, This is the beauty of preaching expositionally, as we have been doing. We are just preaching through 1 Corinthians, and so that means that we can't just avoid passages of it that we don't like, but we have to now preach on it, because we have just come up to it. Now, let me ask you this morning to, you know, whatever your preconceptions or whatever your instinctive response was to the reading of that passage And whatever you might now currently think about that, or or whatever judgment calls perhaps you might have already made, let me ask you to perhaps suspend those for the duration of this sermon and to let the passage speak for itself. Because surely what we've just read is something that we just don't often think or hear about in our society today. To exclude someone or to put them out of the community is really just unheard of. Uh, Images come to mind of, you know, cults that psychologically abuse their people, who threaten them by saying that, you know, if they love God, uh, sorry, if they leave the community, uh, then God will judge them. He'll send them to hell. And now, such abuses are certainly terrible. They are wrong, they are unloving, they are unbiblical, they are unchristian. But like so often, what we do with something like that, like we do with many other things, is that we see something bad and then we immediately think that is wrong and then throw everything else about it out about it without carefully considering, considering whether perhaps there might be some truth in what is going on there. The passage that we just read so plainly and so obviously talks about removing a man from the church, for the destruction of His flesh, and it talks about judging one another. That's the final line of chapter 5. And so, if we believe that the Bible is God's Word and that every word of it is breathed out by God, as 2 Timothy says, which we do, that is what we believe, then, well, we're confronted with a dilemma, aren't we? Either what we just read cannot possibly be applied to Christians and to churches today because it goes against what you believe about what it means that God is love and that He is merciful. And so, you therefore need to just say, well, let's just rip that page out of our Bible. Or, perhaps there might be something about what you believe that doesn't actually align with Scripture. And the fact that God is love and God is merciful, both of which are things that are true, that the Bible does teach. He is love. He is merciful. But perhaps there's something in what we've just read that in your mind doesn't compute. And so perhaps the issue could be the way that we think about what that means, because if that it is true that God is love and that He is merciful, then surely that truth is also true in what we've just read. And so the question this morning that we need to ask ourselves, as Breda mentioned before, is the reason why we sang the two songs that we just did, is what does God's holiness mean for the local church? What does God's holiness mean for the local church? Notice that the question there is local church, not just the Christian. There is a corporate emphasis in that question. And obviously, uh, we're going to be looking at this question through the particular example and the situation that we've just read about, Uh, but it's worth us keeping the broader perspective of that question in our minds as we work our way through it. We're going to be looking this morning at the first eight verses of chapter five and the final five of chapter five we will look at next week. And so this morning, I packaged uh, my three points in a way that I hope the more poetic among us will appreciate. They're in the form of a haiku poem uh, that will help you remember this passage. A little leaven, cleanse out the little leaven, an unleavened lump. Five, seven, five. If you don't know what haiku is, come and talk to me later. Even though I would have preferred to have said, uh, cleanse out the old leaven, because that is more in line with uh, the uh, passage, I needed the extra syllable. So we went with little, and it's still relevant and still true. So let's begin with our first point, a little leaven. In verse 6 in your passages, by the way, keep your Bibles open as we work through it, because you'll need to. In verse 6, Paul says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, these days, if we use the term leaven, we're more likely to be thinking about yeast. Uh, If you've ever made bread or you've ever watched it be made, uh, then you'll know that yeast is a necessary ingredient that helps make bread rise. Without it, your bread will end up looking like flatbread or pita bread. Uh, However, the leaven that Paul actually has in mind uh, actually comes from the Jewish feast of unleavened bread, which Paul alludes to in verses 7 and 8. And unlike today, where we just get our little bit of packet yeast and rip it open and toss it into the um, dough, leaven was actually a small portion of the previous week's uh, bread, or the lump that they were made, used to make it. And it was stored in a place in the right way and, and had juices added to it, that sort of thing, so that that little piece of dough would then ferment. And so that would then become the leaven which would, you would put into the next week's batch And that would cause the loaf to rise, the lump. And if you uh, like sourdough, like me, especially when it's got garlic bread on it. uh, Sorry, garlic butter on it. This is how sourdough was traditionally made. That's the leaven that you would use. You don't use packet yeast. And so when Paul mentions the Passover lamb and the festival that we're to celebrate in verses 7 and 8, the background of that comment is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which Beck read about for us in Exodus 13. It was celebrated at the same time as the Passover and celebrated for a week, where they would eat unleavened bread. Every year in the month of Abib, which is, uh, I'm sure I pronounced that incorrectly, uh, Abib, which is around March, our equivalent, the Israelites had to get rid of any of this kind of leaven from their houses. And so they would only eat unleavened bread for that week. And the purpose was, uh, as verse 8 from Exodus 13 tells us, was so that the Israelites could tell their children about what the Lord did in, in freeing them and from slavery in Egypt. And so this Passover, this feast, was a reminder of God saving them from the angel of death and also a reminder of freeing them from slavery in Egypt. Now, sometimes this bit of leaven that you would save over in order to make the next week's loaf of bread would go a bit bad. There would be some bacteria that could get into it. And so this little bit of leaven, if it was off, would actually end up corrupting the entire loaf. It would make the whole thing terrible and gross and bad and then, of course, if you then take a piece of leaven from that and then make that into the next loaf, it just keeps going. And so the only way to break that cycle would be to have a complete reset. You had to do a new lump without any leaven. And So you can see why this image is useful for what Paul is actually talking about in this man caught in an incestuous relationship. He's just finished, as we saw at the end of chapter 4 last week, a long section... That was responding to the d- division and to the lack of unity uh, because the Corinthians would uh, you know, boast about different teachers and boast about their supposed wisdom that they had. And Paul finished that section by admonishing them for their arrogance. And so now that he's just spent four chapters talking about the foundation of the wisdom of the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus, the fact that that is wisdom to those who are being saved and foolishness to those who are perishing he now moves on to specific ways that that shows itself in this fledgling church and so this is where we are in verse one let's read that together it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans for a man has his father's wife. Now, Paul's obviously been told, he says, it is reported, uh, perhaps by the same group of Chloe's people who told him about the divisions in the church, that there is this heinous sin going on and it is going unchallenged in the church. They are tolerating it. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, this language actually mirrors that of Leviticus 18, verses 7 to 8, where there is a specific instruction about uh, one's mother and then also one's father's wife. There's a distinction between a mother and a stepmother, or in those days, perhaps a concubine. And so because of the way Paul has worded this here in 1 Corinthians 5, it's very likely that he's actually referring to a stepmother, this man's stepmother, not his actual mother. And the word has, where he says a man has his father's wife, is a common way of actually saying sleeping with. All right, and the context of sexual immorality is actually also very clear that that is what he is saying. The, the word has there also, the tense of it indicates that this sin is ongoing. It's not something that he did and then he's, you know, he's stopped now, but actually he is still continuing to engage in this affair with his stepmother. It's interesting that Paul says that this sin is something that's not even tolerated among the pagans. Uh, you may have heard before that Roman society had pretty loose sexual ethics, uh, which is true, generally. Uh, however, they still had some standards. Uh, and incest was actually taken pretty seriously. Uh, it could be receive a, a civil punishment in society. A well-known section from uh, one of Cicero's speeches from about 70 B.C., Uh, about a, a woman in an incestuous relationship, says this. Oh, to think of the woman's sin, unbelievable, unheard of in all experience, save for this single instance. To think of her wicked passion, unbridled, untamed, to think that she did not quail, if not before the vengeance of heaven, on the scandal among men. And so, Paul, who, as you might remember, has been telling the Corinthians off this whole time. So far in his letter, he's saying, you are acting like spiritual infants because you look like the world. You know, he's, he said that in, in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. Now he's heaping shame on them even further by saying, look, not only do you look like the world, you're even worse. <laughs> Those who are outside the church, the pagans, uh, I mean, you're outdoing their depravity. And he says, you're arrogant, in verse 2. You think you're so wise because you haven't done anything about this man? You think, you think you're spiritually great because you've, you're able to turn a blind eye? Paul is saying, no, not, not even pagans think that this is okay. Not even those who already have a far lower bar in terms of sexual ethics, not even they reckon this is something that is kosher. Now, some have suggested that one of the reasons the Corinthian church did not confront this man might be because perhaps he was a wealthy patron, perhaps he was an important official, somebody that, you know, was hard to actually talk to about this particular sin. And so they were afraid to do it. That would certainly mesh with what we know about the Corinthians' attitude so far. But whatever the reason, the Corinthians chose not to confront him and deal with this blatant sexual sin. And Paul would have none of it. His concern is not offending somebody. His concern is the glory of God and the holiness of his church. Ought you not rather to mourn, he says. He goes on to say in verse 2, And by mourning, he's he's not just talking about being sad. Yes, obviously, it's one thing to be sad about sin. Many of us might know that, experience that, feel that when we do something wrong. But being sad about sin is not the same thing as repenting from sin. In the Old Testament, the right response to the Lord exposing sin in the lives of the people was to mourn and repent. Repent to grieve the fact that they had sinned against the holy God and to turn from that sin was the response. And this is why Paul then goes on to say that the response of the church should have been mourning and removing the man from among them. The second half of verse 2 is linked to the fact that he says you should have mourned. And the Corinthian church had drifted so far from the wisdom and the spiritual power of the cross that they couldn't even see that doing nothing about this man was actually their sin before God. They couldn't see that their toleration of his incestuous relationship was a sin of omission. They failed to do what they should have. They failed to consider the holiness of God and its implications for the church. And this is something that we need to pick up on as a church, as those who claim to follow Christ right here in the 21st century, because our world certainly has some parallels. As modern Australians, uh, we have, I think, generally as a society, pretty loose sexual ethics as well, but we still have standards. For example, incest, I think, would generally still be frowned upon by most people in our society. And so, we can read a passage like this and most of us will still think, whether Christian or not, what were those Corinthians thinking? Like, I can't believe that they would let that kind of sexual immorality go unchecked in their church. And yet, ask yourself, when was the last time you saw a church confront sexual sin in one of its members, when was the last time you saw a church confront any kind of blatant, obvious, unrepentant sin? You see, because most people agree that incest is wrong, because your average person can read that and agree that that's bad, and because we, you know, won't be seen as strange or as prudish in our society for saying that as Christians, We can fool ourselves into thinking that because we agree that, hey, we're good Christians, because, yeah, I agree with Paul, that's wrong. And yet Paul here, at the start, says sexual immorality, which is a general term that refers to any kind of sexual activity outside of a monogamous marriage between a man and a woman, which is the biblical design. And not only that, if you read further in verses 10 and 11, which we'll get to next week, Paul actually then expands the list of sins that the church should be responding to. And so how does God's holiness affect the way we think as a church about sin? In particular, what should a church do about this kind of sin that warrants removing a member from among them? And Paul is about to get into the how of that in the next section. But before we get there, I want you to pause for a moment and think. Because, you know, even though this action is something that's done by the whole church, if you're part of a church, you have to be part of that action. So ask yourself, what if this was one of your best friends? What if it was someone in your own family? What if it was your spouse or a parent or an adult child? Would your allegiance be to your own blood or would it be to Christ's blood? You see, we can look at the Corinthians and we think we're more superior because in our minds, you know, we would never let something like that happen. We would never let somebody who has high status or whatever intimidate us from doing the right thing. And yet, if we bring it home, if we put faces we know and love to the situation and broaden it out so that we're not just talking about something that everybody agrees is terrible, but even things that... that we have a fundamental deep disagreement about whether it is right or wrong with non-Christians and with the broader society around us. When you consider it from that perspective, are you still willing to confront sin? Are you willing to confront it in your own life? Are we still willing to confront sin as God's church? Or are we tempted to tell ourselves that a mature Christian is one who believes showing grace, because God is gracious, means not being judgmental about others? As you read through this chapter, you'll see that while Paul is certainly concerned about this man and wants him to be saved, as we're going to see in this next section, his primary emphasis and his primary concern is the holiness of God's church. This is why Paul instructs him as he does. Which brings us to point two. Cleanse out the little leaven. Let's read together from the second half of verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. As I mentioned before, this response is linked to the mourning that Paul has just spoken about. The grief over his sin ought to be accompanied by this action that seeks to bring this man to repentance. And Paul goes on to describe how the church must do that. Let's look at verse 3. For the absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. This is what the church ought to do. Have you ever said, uh, I'll be with you in spirit? Or, I'm with you in spirit. I know I certainly have. I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and that was pretty common, to just say something like that. I wonder though, have you ever thought about what that actually means? Uh, In my mind, prior to studying this passage, I thought it just meant something like, my thoughts are with you. And given the way that we use it today, that, that probably is what we mean when we say it these days, it would be easy to assume that this is what Paul also means in the passage, But the fact that Paul assumes that there is authority in his being present in spirit means there's something more going on here than just, hey, my thoughts are with you guys. Some have suggested that Paul is simply talking about the fact that there is a difference between flesh and spirit. And so in some sense, because we are spiritual beings, Paul's spirit is in some way with them. Others say that Paul is actually making a statement here that It is by the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity, that he can be present. And so Paul is intentionally referencing him as the one through whom he is able to make this statement. It is because of our unity in the Holy Spirit that I am present with you. Now, personally, I I think it's difficult to know exactly what he means. Uh, The word studies that say that Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit, they have a good case. Uh, But verse 5, as we'll get to, also seems to point in the direction of Paul using the term spirit uh, as, as something that is separate to our flesh. I think there is likely some kind of sense that Paul envisages us as having unity in Christ and therefore unity in the Holy Spirit. And so that is probably the grounds for which he can say that he is present. But beyond that, I'm not really sure what else he might mean. Regardless, the point is the same, that his judgment that this man is in unrepentant sin and needs to be removed is not something that is just his opinion. It's one that the church is to agree on, they are to agree with Paul's judgment and pronounce this on the man authoritatively. He's saying, my judgment is the same. If I was there physically with you, or the fact that I am away from you now, and I am present in spirit, I would be rising with you in judgment of this man, and handing him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And now, some people think that uh, this verse gives elders the right to remove members from the church without consultation with the church, Uh, but verse 4 makes this impossible. Let's look at verse 4 together. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul says, when you are assembled. And he is uh, here tapping into the authority of the keys of the kingdom. Uh, which Jesus mentions to his disciples in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. Now, if you're taking notes, write that down. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. I'm not going to take us through that, but to give you a a rough gist of what what Jesus is saying in that passage, he says, uh, when a brother or sister sins against you, you are to speak to them about it. And first you talk to them directly and if they refuse to listen, then take one or two others with you to have a conversation with them about that sin. And if they still don't listen to you, well then you need to take it to the church, he says. And if he or she still won't listen to the church, then treat them as an unbeliever. And then Jesus finishes with these words in Matthew 18 uh, verses 18 to 20. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The church has been authorized by Jesus to make proclamations on earth about heavenly realities. Let me say that again. The church has been authorized by Jesus to make proclamations on earth about heavenly realities. This is what Paul is talking about when he says that the church assembles in the name of Jesus and they act with the power of Jesus. That's what he refers to. The church assembles together to carry out this final step of discipline that Jesus has outlined in Matthew 18, after long periods of pleading and bringing others along and urging this this brother or sister to repent. And they do so when they are gathered, when they are assembled in his name, and they do it by his power. The church has no power except that which the Lord gives to it. Which means that the Church can only call people to what God says in His Word. We don't have a Pope, we don't have a modern-day Apostle who can speak authoritatively on behalf of God. The canon is closed, God has spoken, and we live by the words in Scripture. And so Paul says, upon that authority that Jesus has given to the church, not my authority, not anyone else's authority, that authority that you have when the church is assembled together, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Well, what on earth does that mean? (laughs) Anybody wondering? This verse often trips people up because it is rather confusing. Why would a Christian want to hand someone over to Satan? Some have interpreted this as a judgment of the man that will result in his death, hence the destruction of the flesh. Such a view though doesn't really make sense of the second half of the verse where Paul says that his spirit may be saved. Others have Seen it as referring to physical illness that leads to death, but for a different reason, reason for the man's eventual eternal salvation. And that's possible, but it doesn't really make sense of why such a person would then still have to die, even if they did repent. And it also understands God's judgment in the here and now too simply. The Bible's picture of how God works in the world is not uh, always so linear. You do this, you get that. His sovereignty is beyond our comprehension. That's why the book of Job is in Scripture, which also interestingly shows that even Satan does not exist outside the realm of God's control. The most likely explanation is that Paul is saying this man must be acknowledged and declared by the church as somebody who is living under the rule of the prince of this world. By handing him over to Satan, they are, they are saying, here is where you naturally belong. Because your life is no longer being lived, is no longer evident as somebody who is living in God's kingdom. You are not living as someone who has bowed the knee to Jesus, the true king. And so this man must be handed over Back to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Flesh here meaning his sinful desires that rage against God and that he obviously hasn't put to death. And Paul's use of the term flesh in in his letters often refers to our sinful nature. And it seems clear that this is what Paul is talking about here. It's especially clear because of the end of this sentence. What's the purpose Of this destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord the day of the Lord being the day of judgment the day that Jesus will come again and he will hold all people accountable to whether they have chosen to put their faith and trust in him and turn away from their sin or not when we compare this explanation to the only other time Paul uses this phrase in the New Testament, which is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19-20, to 20, it seems to clearly make sense of what Paul is talking about there. They made shipwreck of their faith. Paul wants them to turn away from sinful desires, from the flesh, and put their trust in Christ. As an act of discipline, Paul is saying when you've assembled as the church in Jesus' name, and I'm with you in spirit by the power that has been given through His name, remove this man from among you so that he might repent of his sin and trust in Christ and be saved in eternity. This is what... Has historically in the church been called excommunication. If you're familiar with that term at all, uh, you probably only recognize it as something that cults or Catholics do when someone speaks out of turn or goes against the leadership. Well, the word itself simply means removed from the community. Ex meaning out of, communicate meaning the shared community. And it is simply a word that describes the act that Paul has just described in this chapter that of putting a person living in unrepentant sin out of the church community. And that act is an act of profound love. Do you agree? What does that surprise you, that doing such a thing could be considered loving? As I mentioned at the beginning, in our world today, there is possibly nothing more unloving than excluding somebody or cutting them off from any kind of community for any reason. And we're supposed to be an inclusive society. The kind of tolerance that is preached today is one that says, you know, if you really want to be loving, if you truly love me, then you shouldn't be telling me that I should, what I should do, or what I should be. And there should never be any reason for a church to remove someone from their community. In the eyes of the world, this is something that is profoundly unloving. Well, you know, if you believe there is no God... If you believe this life is all there is, I'd probably agree. Or if you believe that when we say God is love or when we say God is merciful, what we mean by that is that God doesn't care about what we do with our bodies or what we do with our lives. And you know, He's made us the way we are, so He doesn't want us to change anything. If that's what you believe, yeah, I'd probably agree with you. But if you do think that or if you think something similar to that or perhaps you didn't realize that that is something that you think, then just imagine a different picture of God with me for a moment. Imagine that there is a God who is not just love but who is also perfectly just and holy and sinless. And that the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross wasn't so that we could just punch our ticket to heaven and then live life however we want to, but so that we could be forgiven for our sin and find our ultimate satisfaction in Him, pursuing holiness because we want to be like Christ, who was perfectly holy and that we do so by the power of His Holy Spirit until we see Him on that final day. Can you imagine a God like that? If that is Him, what would be the implications for us today? Surely, Surely, if you can entertain the possibility of the God that I've just described, which is the God that we read about in Scripture, the true God who has revealed Himself to us, surely you can see how a church excommunicating a member this way who is caught in unrepentant sin so that they might repent and turn away from that sin and be saved on the day of judgment is an act of profound love. If what matters most in life is not whether you live comfortably or whether you are free from pain or whether you get to achieve all the things that your heart desires and succeed at at your career or whatever it might be. If what is most important is whether you are right before God in this life and in the next, that what is most important is that your heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh out of love for God. And can you see how this is the most loving thing a church can do for a member who is making shipwreck of their faith? In the same way that the wisdom of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, so the wisdom and love of excommunication is foolishness and unloving to those who haven't turned to the savior now i'm sure you have many questions about what this looks like and how it's practiced in the church unfortunately i don't have time to go into that great in great detail this morning so we'll have to save that either for a core class or a sermon on matthew 18 or a conversation Or question time but let me give you seven very quick points which you'll either have to furiously write down or just listen to or go and listen to the recording again number one remember humility if you weren't here last week listen to last week's sermon humility is the natural response of sinful beings before a holy God Number two, the vast majority of discipline happens before excommunication. We see that in Matthew 18. The number of people involved, it only gets bigger when a person refuses to repent. And so what the purpose of this is to see that a person who is truly regenerate, truly loves Christ, they will turn. They will turn to Christ because they don't want to remain in sin. And so this... Uh, the vast majority of discipline happens before we get to this point. Number three, speaking of which, repentance is crucial. Uh, This man that we read about in 1 Corinthians 5, he wasn't repentant. He was continuing in his sin. That's why I've referred to all along to unrepentant sinners, those who are choosing not to turn to Christ when God reveals to them ways that they are not living for him, And so this isn't about perfection. This isn't about uh, thinking that we all need to make sure we never put a foot wrong. This is about recognizing that God will continually be sanctifying us for the rest of our lives. And so we call one another to that. Number four, a church must have meaningful membership. Uh, h- how can a church put someone out of, of it if there is no in. We, as the church, we need to know one another. We need to love one another. We need to be in each other's lives. We're not going to be doing this unless we are committed to one another, unless we have covenanted to one another in meaningful membership. And unless we have that kind of love, that kind of depth of commitment to each other, then it is far less likely that you will be willing to actually share with others the things that you are struggling with. Church must have meaningful membership. Number five. Oh, yeah, number five. Only those in our local church are the ones that we have responsibility for. The Corinthians, they weren't responsible for excommunicating sinful Galatians. And you may notice the stepmother is actually not mentioned at all in this passage, other than at the beginning. It is just the man who is to receive disciplinary action. And so it's likely that she actually wasn't a member of the church. And now we'll talk about this more next week, but the key point is that the church only has responsibility to judge its own, which is why we need meaningful membership. Number six, the church has declarative power, not forcible power. Paul's not envisaging uh, burly bodyguards grabbing this man and dropping him off at Satan's door, which, if you can find, that would be impressive. No, the church together, as the church, declares that we can no longer be confident in this member's profession of faith because their lives aren't aligning with what they claim to believe. Number seven. The purpose and hope of excommunication is turning back to God. And so because the church's power is declarative and not forcible, so we're not actually... You you know, unless there is a reason for safety to actually have to do something about that. And because repentance is our hope, then for an excommunicated member, this is the very place we want them to be. We're not going to have Brad standing at the door looking at people, you're excommunicated, sorry, please leave. No that's not going to, that's not what we we want them here we want them to be sitting here and and hearing the gospel so that they might turn from their sin and put their trust in Christ And yet the nature of that relationship will be a different relationship We can't interact with somebody who is in this situation as though everything is fine we don't want to make them think that hey you're you're cool everything's all right between you and God no we want to be urging them with everything in every opportunity that we have to repent and turn to Jesus because what Paul describes here is a loving act that seeks to save the unrepentant sinner but you know it's not just loving and saving the individual It is loving and saving the whole church. And that's our final point this morning an unleavened lump. Let's read from verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Here's another clue that Paul's primary concern is the whole church. Not only is this whole passage about the preservation of the church, but here he once again brings up their arrogance. And he does so with fairly straight talk. Your arrogance is not good. Their sinful pride has blinded them to the fact that they are turning a blind eye to this sin, and that in doing so, there are devastating consequences. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, he says. And we know what this looks like, don't we? When a church or a community doesn't speak up about or doesn't deal with something that they know is wrong among them, the people begin to just settle in and get cozy with sin. And that's the natural tendency of our sinful nature, isn't it? So, of course, if you couple the the drift of sin towards Tolerating and not wanting to do anything about sin, combine that with the social and the relational pressure that comes with being able to, uh, with, with needing to actually talk to others about it, becomes a lot more difficult to go against the grain. And once that bit of leaven has worked its way through the whole lump, there is no going back. Churches have imploded because of this. Churches have settled into worldly mediocrity towards sin and they are now sleepwalking into hell because of this. Churches have had wolves in sheep's clothing become senior pastors who then ravage the entire congregation because of this. Just a small bit of rotten, contaminated leaven, if it works its way through the whole lump, destroys the whole thing. All it takes is that one person's unrepentant sin be tolerated, and that process begins. So what are we to do? What does verse 7 say? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Paul is saying here, unless all rise, all rise. (laughs) That is, unless all rise in judgment, On this man, the whole lump, the whole church will rise in sin with his leaven. It's obvious that Paul is referring to this process of excommunicating this man that he's just described, as we've just discussed. But it is worth noting the second half of this sentence. As you really are unleavened. You see, the rule of so-called religion is that we need to do the right thing in order to be accepted by God or in order to receive reward. So in Islam, it's the five pillars. You need to do those in order to be saved. In Buddhism, it's experiencing suffering. You need to experience a certain amount of it in order to achieve greater, you know. In atheism, it's working to get what you want. You've got to do it. But the Christian faith is different. The reason Christians talk about the gospel, which is another word for good news, is because the Bible teaches that it's not actually possible for you to do enough to be accepted by God. You are inherently sinful. And that automatically, immediately puts you at odds with the God who is holy. As we sang just a moment ago, only thou art holy and there is none beside thee. God is holy and we are not. Our natural intuition, our flesh opposes God. None of us naturally desire to please God. None of us naturally do what we ought to do. None of us can perfectly obey God's commands, no matter how hard we try. And that might sound like bad news at first, which it is, because a holy God must justly punish sin in us. But the good news, the good news of the gospel is that God in His great love, in His great mercy, and in His perfect justice sent His only begotten Son, Jesus, to receive the penalty of your sin on the cross, to receive the penalty of my sin on the cross, so that through faith in Him, you and I might be rescued from that penalty. And the Bible talks about that as our justification. I receive Jesus' righteousness just as if I had never sinned. If there's something that you haven't done yet, then there is no more important decision to make in your life than that. This is why Paul can tell the Corinthians that they really are an unleavened lump. Because it's not that they've done all the right things that they need to do in order to be perfect. He's reminding them in this sentence of a theological truth that he talks about so often in all of his letters. You have been made righteous through faith in Jesus. So be righteous. It's not the other way around. Make sure you get the order right. You don't become righteous because you have done enough righteous things. No, you become righteous through faith in Christ and then you strive to be like Him in holiness. We can flip the sentence order in this verse to get at what I'm talking about here, and I'll put it on the screen to help you. Because you really are unleavened, cleanse out the old leaven. Because you are really unleavened, now act as though that is true. As Christians and as a church, we don't, we don't strive to be holy because we think that that is going to save us. We do it because we know that we have already been saved by God's grace through our faith in Jesus. And that's exactly where Paul goes next. Let's have a look from second half of verse 7. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The Passover lamb was the lamb that was sacrificed and whose blood was painted on the doorposts of the Israelites so that when the angel of death would come through Egypt it would pass over their houses and they would be spared. That was in the 10th plague that God sent on Egypt. And Paul is here showing how that Passover lamb pointed forward to Jesus. Jesus would become the Passover lamb for the entire world. Jesus would become the one whose blood would be shed so that God's judgment might pass over those who put their faith in him. It's because of what Jesus has done that our hearts are transformed from being hearts of stone to being hearts of flesh. From wanting to bathe in our sin to being cleansed by His blood. To live in the light. You know, there's no other way that a church could possibly carry out what Paul has just instructed them unless they have the gospel. You see, if you try to just take this whole idea of excommunication in chapter 5 and you try to apply it to a church without the gospel, I can almost certainly guarantee you that you will end up with a cult. That's because without the gospel, who makes the rules? We do. And so we end up becoming the arrogant ones who think we know better than God you know we become the ones who think we don't need to have our sin called into account we start to think well if i'm the one in power well i guess i'm untouchable nobody can talk to me about my sin because i'm i'm doing quite well i'm a good example of this without the gospel you end up with a church that's just constantly suspicious of one another constantly suspicious of their motives It's only when we look to Christ. It's only when we look to Jesus, our Passover lamb, who is the Passover lamb for all who put their faith in Him, that we can have the necessary humility, that we can have the necessary love for God and for His holiness, that we can have the necessary love for our brothers and sisters to be willing to discipline them, to be willing to expose our own sin before them, and yes, to be willing to even excommunicate them. If we ever have to face this in our church... Then we must keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the Passover lamb. You know, interestingly, despite being such a heavy topic, Paul moves on to a celebratory note. What does verse 8 say? Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Do you notice the flow of thought there? Therefore, Paul says, because Jesus is our Passover lamb, let's celebrate the festival let's celebrate this feast of unleavened bread. Not literally, not the actual Jewish festival and let's go and you know, eat unleavened bread for a week. No, he's saying, let's celebrate this as Christians who have been saved by Christ. And the way we celebrate it is not by doing this ritual, not by sometime in March, you know, clearing leaven out of our houses. No, he's saying... We celebrate it by clearing out malice and evil in our lives, by by clearing out sin and living as though we are those who are unleavened in sincerity and truth. We celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross by daily killing sin. You might remember a few weeks ago, I quoted John Owen's well-known line, you need to be killing sin or it will be killing you. Well, that's certainly true, and that's certainly applicable here. But, allow me to give you another Owen quote from the same book to show how this is actually possible, brought to you by RefTunes, one of my favourite Instagram accounts. <laughs> there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. There is no death of sin without the death of Christ. Jesus' work on the cross makes all of this possible. Our Passover lamb sacrifice makes it possible to sincerely go about the business of killing sin. And that's why Paul says sincerity. You notice how he doesn't say the unleavened bread of perfection and truth. Because God knows that this side of heaven, we won't reach perfection. But when he transforms our hearts and when he renews our minds with the gospel, we can begin to pursue sincere lives, desiring and working towards the killing of sin and the living in holiness. And we do that together. We pursue holiness together as God's church. You see, even though it's conventional wisdom in our world to say, what I do in my private time and in my bedroom is none of your business. Actually, the gospel enables Christians and the church to recognize that, no, that's not true. What we do with our lives in our private time and in our bedrooms is all of our business. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about being prying and busybody and, 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 you know, having a thirst for gossip. That's not what we're talking about. Scripture is clear about those sins. But we're talking about doing this in such a way that, that says to one another, brother, sister, I love you too much not to let you hide your sin in the dark. Brother, sister, I love you too much not to let you think that you're going to get away with this and then be okay with God on the day you see Him. Say, Face to face. I love you too much not to tell you that living in sin while calling yourself a Christian is going to send you to hell. And I love God's people and my church too much to let you destroy it. This is what it means to celebrate being an unleavened lump. We don't gleefully toss people outside the camp We don't delight in the suffering and the struggles of others and it doesn't bring us joy to excommunicate a brother or a sister. But we celebrate that God has made us an unleavened lump and we celebrate the fact that this holy God who could justly and righteously pour out his wrath on us doesn't because of his great love and his great mercy. We get to celebrate the fact that Jesus was good for us and by putting our faith in him, our hearts no longer desire to live with evil or malice, but in sincere pursuit of holiness and in sincere killing of sin according to his truth. That's what the cross does in our lives. That's what I pray it does in our church. I hope you realise now that the question, what does God's holiness mean for our church, has broad and wide implications. That it means as an unleavened lump that has been justified by Jesus, our Passover lamb, We have been called to put sin to death and to pursue holiness. And part of that means pursuing holiness together. Even when it's hard. Even when it's awkward. Even when it means excommunication. As God's church, will we look to Christ... And live as an unleavened lump. Let's pray. Lord, you are perfect in power, in justice in love, in mercy, in goodness. We worship you and you alone. So often and so easily, Lord, we are tempted to worship a God rather of our own making than the God who is revealed to us in Christ and in Scripture. Father, may we never be so complacent as to be comfortable with that. But Lord, I pray that we as individuals and we as a church would respond to you recognizing and knowing that we are saved by your grace. And as a result, you have given us your spirit so that we might put sin to death and pursue holiness to be like Christ. Father, may this be deeply embedded in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.